I would direct your attention to Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs chapter 6. A moment ago, in Proverbs chapter 6, I read verses 1 through 23 for our reading. But for our text this morning, we will be looking specifically at verses 12 through 19 in Proverbs chapter 6. Hear the word of the Lord. A worthless person, a wicked man, walks with a perverse mouth. He winks with his eyes. He shuffles his feet. He points with his fingers. Perversity is in his heart. He devises evil continually. He sows discord. Therefore, his calamity shall come suddenly. Suddenly, he shall be broken without remedy. These six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that are swift in running to evil. A false witness who speaks lies. And one who sows discord among brethren. Let us pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that it is a lamp to us, Lord. A light. Father, we pray that you come by your spirit, Lord, to teach us your word. Lord, that you would... Continue to transform us and change us, Lord, and conform us to the image of your dear Son. And, Lord, that as you change us, Lord, as you change our character to be in line with his, Lord, that you would apply these words that we are about to hear and about to see, Lord. We ask this in Christ Jesus' holy name. Amen. Very often in life, you have to understand the bad news before the good news makes sense. You have to understand what is true that may be horrible, but real, in order for the real that is hopeful and good to mean anything to you. The book of Proverbs certainly does this for us. It speaks of sin and its consequences. It speaks of wickedness very clearly. One of the techniques in the book of Proverbs that is used time and again to teach wisdom is the way of contrast. And so we have set before us in this book the way of righteousness and the way of wickedness. We have the wise man and the fool. We have lady wisdom and lady folly. In the text before us this morning in Proverbs chapter 6, What we find is wisdom being taught to us by contrast. We have, in essence, an, an anatomy of wickedness given to us from the standpoint of both heaven and earth. First, in verses 12 through 15, we have a portrait of a wicked man. The consummate wicked man that is drawn out for us. And then in verses 16 through 19, we are told what God thinks about such a person. 
We get the perspective from earth and the perspective from heaven. And we're given this insight by way of warning. By this extended treatment of the subject, the father who is teaching his son wants to warn his son about wickedness. He wants to warn him so that he will be guarded against wicked people. But he also wants his son to see the reality and the consequences of wicked actions so that he will not give himself to that. And where he discovers wickedness in his heart, he will take it seriously. Beware of wicked people. Don't be deceived by them. And don't cast your lot with them. Recognize wickedness where it is prevalent in the world. And recognize wickedness where it even exists in your own life. Resist it. Avoid it. Where it is found within you, put it to death and run to the only place where you can be rescued from it. In verse 12, the wise man describes wickedness as a worthless person. A worthless person is a wicked man. Do you see how he parallels those two ideas there? The word worthless translates the Hebrew word belial. And if you're familiar with the New Testament, you recognize that word. This is a word that has a long history to it in Scripture. Commentator Bruce Walk, he says, it denotes a person who is implacably wicked and agitates against everything that is good. This person, this worthless person, this wicked person is a troublemaker, but not of the godly sort. He is a threat to the community. Eventually, this word came to be used to personify the devil himself. So when you read in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 15, when Paul is warning believers how they are to live as children of light, he contrasts that with the devil and calls the devil Belial, the personification of everything that is wicked. This wicked person is antisocial in his behavior. He revolts against the will of God. He seeks to hurt others. And so the father here wanted to teach his son wisdom. And we get in on that by seeing how he does that and learning the lessons that he teaches. He's concerned that his son would recognize the nature of wickedness. And he does so by making a composite of the wicked person. The father is not talking about any specific individual when he describes the worthless man or the wicked man, but he's rather talking about a type of person that wisdom dictates we must guard against and we must refuse to join. Now, our text, the verses that we just read, they give us wonderful insight into what wickedness looks like and where it leads. And I want us to consider the verses that we read by just looking at five things that we can find from this passage. Five lessons. We find wickedness described first. We find its disruption described. We find its desperation set before us. We find its destruction or its ultimate destiny taught to us. And then finally, we are given in those last verses in this passage what the wicked person's real problem is. What is the great threat to his life? 
Now Solomon starts off in verses 12 and 13 describing this person. What is the description of a wicked man? And he does so by utilizing body parts. He compares the nature of wickedness, the action of wickedness, to the parts of a person's body. So in verse 12 we read that his mouth is perverse. He walks according to a perverse mouth. In other words, he speaks falsehoods. He traffics in half-truths. He delights in distortions. Truth is merely an expedient to him. So he'll tell you the truth when it serves his purposes, but when his purposes would be better served by shading the truth or leaving things unsaid so that wrong ideas are produced by his conversation, he'll do that because he's more committed to himself and to his own purposes than than to speaking honestly and truthfully. As Matthew Henry comments, the wicked man does this very artfully and with design. He has the subtlety of the serpent and carries on his projects with a great deal of craft and management. This is how he spreads his wickedness. He speaks. He insinuates things. He can be subtle in trying to raise doubts and misunderstandings in people's minds and leave it with them. And consequently, a wicked person isn't trustworthy. You can't count on his report. You can't put stock in his assertions. Verse 13, the body parts continue as the wise man says, he uses his whole body to communicate wickedly. It's not just with his mouth that he promotes wickedness, but he winks with his eyes. He shuffles his feet. He points with his fingers. What is Solomon doing here? Well, he's helping us to understand the methodology the modus operandi of wickedness in a person's life, how he will operate in such a way as to be sly and subtle to communicate his wicked plans to accomplish his wicked purposes, even when he's not speaking. He winks with an evil intent. As one translator has put it, we should see this as winking maliciously. It's not the friendly little wink when we tease one another and say things when we're just playing around. This is a wink that is a signal. It's a signal to his cohorts, to his partners in crime, to those who are with him in his schemes, that they are now to take the steps arranged beforehand to carry out devious plans. The same thing with shuffling his feet. We don't know exactly what this means, but it is probably right to see this shuffling as signaling with his feet. The word translated shuffle literally means to scrape. So if you could imagine this person scraping the ground with his foot, maybe he points with his feet or kicks the ground or or something that is a signal to those that are with him in his evil schemes for them to know that it's time to act. He points with his fingers. Again, another signal. Not, Not sure exactly what is involved here, but it's involved in the physical motions. It is a signal to those who are aligned with him to begin acting on their evil purposes. In Luke chapter 6, in verse 45, Jesus says, A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good, 
And an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. Where evil predominates, evil comes out. The wise man is telling us that it's not just coming in words, though it does that, but it comes out in body language. It comes out in how the wicked man conducts himself around others. And when there is a wicked plan, a wicked scheme that is afoot. It's possible for a wicked person to carry out his intentions without ever saying a word. So that if you question him about it and you say, you said this, he can very self-righteously say, I didn't say a word. I didn't tell him to do anything. I just winked. I just moved my hand a little bit. I just signaled. I didn't say anything. I'm innocent in this. But the proverb destroys that kind of thinking, that foolishness, and tells us wickedness can be promoted even without words when the heart of man is set on evil. Well, the father wants his son to be aware of this. He wants his son not to get caught up in such wickedness. But he also wants his son not to be ensnared by, not to be taken advantage by such wicked practices of those whom he calls worthless people. Well, after noting this description of such a man in verses 12 and 13, we next see the wicked man's uh, disruption in the last two lines of verse 14. Verse 14 is a three-line proverb. And the last two lines say, He devises evil continually. He sows discord. He devises evil. And this, this is language that is borrowed from the farm where a farmer will plot, will plot out his land and plow the land. That's devising. He does it so that he can have a harvest. But the evil man thinks about plots and plans and does this so that he can bring about evil purposes. And he does this habitually. He does it continually. He sows discord. Again, literally, he's unleashing discord. He understands what's going to happen if only he says a certain thing or if he signals something. Then these events will inevitably come. This is the same word that is used in Judges chapter 15 in verse 5 when it describes what Samson did after he was betrayed by the Philistines when he had 300 foxes captured and he tied torches to their tails. And he set them loose through the grain fields. He unleashed devastation upon those fields of the Philistines in the same way that an evil person unleashes discord among brothers. He causes trouble between people. He stirs up dissension. He works to create tension. And there are a thousand ways to do this, but perhaps the most common and the most prevalent is with the tongue. It's with our mouths. Speaking things that should not be said. Saying things in ways that should not be spoken. James chapter 3 says, the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. And then James also says, right before that, see how great a forest a little fire kindles. 
If you traffic in rumor, you repeat tales that result in hurt feelings unnecessarily, or you arouse passions for no good purpose, then you are falling into this very pattern of life. The pattern of the wicked man who sows discord. Proverbs 16.28 says, A perverse man sows strife, and a whisperer separates the best of friends. And sometimes these types of divisive communications come just that way. Hey, come over here for just a second. I want to tell you something. And then there's some little juicy tidbit that is spoken into another person's ear. And the result is division. It's no good purpose. It's discord. Well, the reason that a wicked person operates like this is stated in the first part of verse 14. We have the description of the wicked person. And we have the disruption caused by the wicked person. And in the first line of verse 14, we see the desperation of this person. The desperation. His case is this. Perversity is in his heart. His heart harbors perversity. As one writer put it, the heart of this man's problem is the problem of this man's heart. It's not just the stuff that he does. It's not just the activities he's engaged in. It's what is inside him. His heart is busted. It's not the way it's supposed to be. It's not the way that God originally created humanity to be. But because of sin, because of rebellion, because of being separated from God in our rebellion, now, then there is something internally, desperately wrong. Our affections are not what they're supposed, or not what they're supposed to be. Our minds are not what they're supposed to be. Our wills are not what they're supposed to be. This is the desperate condition. Perversity is in his heart. Do you remember what God said in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5 in the days of Noah before the flood? Do you remember God's commentary on the world in Genesis 6, 5? Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now that's, that's the end result of what sin does in the lives of individuals and communities. It turns us so far away from God that if left unchecked, left uncorrected, it will cause us only to continually to think and conceive evil. Well, that's, that's what sin has done to human nature. It's ruined us from the inside out. That's why cleaning up your act will never do. Turning over a new leaf will not do. The preacher, again Solomon, in Ecclesiastes 7.29 says, Truly this only have I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. God made us upright, but by seeking our own way, we've turned away from him and separated from him. And now corruption has come. And it's inside of us. It's inside of us. It's not out there. It's in here. 
And getting this point will save you from a lot of blind alleys and a lot of rabbit trails that lead nowhere in your fight against sin. Because if you think evil is simply out there, then all you have to do is cut yourself off from out there. Get rid of the TV because the TV is evil. Don't go to the movies because movies are evil. Don't get on social media. You see, if you conceive of evil only being out there, you think, well, all I've got to do is cut myself off from it. And I will be free of evil. But all you'll do is bring the evil that is in you, with you, and in a way that will remain undetected and continue to grow without you ever dealing with it. If you conceive of it being out there. Evil arises from within. Because when we sinned against God, we fell miserably. Our whole being has become corrupt and ruined and impacted with wickedness. That's what this proverb is telling us. In Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 9, we're told the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Since sin has entered the world, this is the state of every human heart by nature. Left unchecked, left unchanged. This is the tendency of every person to give full vent to the perversity that is within. When you see this, when you understand this, when you recognize what the Bible says about wickedness, as it portrays it that it is universal in human nature, you know what happens? No longer are you stunned by wicked outbreaks. No longer do we say, how in the world could he do that? How could this happen? What begins to happen is that you're stunned that the world is not a field of blood and on fire. You're stunned that we're not at all, we're not all at each other's throats. The reason that we're not is because God in his grace and his mercy restrains our evil. Restrains this perversity and this wickedness that is in us. And he's working and has worked to overcome the ravages of sin in human nature. The wicked man's problem is not external. It's internal. It's his heart. And unless he is changed, unless he changes, his destiny will be destruction. And that's verse 14. What is the destiny? What is the destruction of this wicked man? What awaits him? And you see those two words in verse 15. Calamity and broken or brokenness. Calamity, ruin, disaster. Brokenness, like a a ship being destroyed on rocks in a storm. Like a piece of pottery that is thrown down on a hard ground and shatters into a thousand pieces. This destruction, this calamity, it comes upon the wicked deservedly. Therefore, do you see that in the text? Therefore, therefore, because he is this way, this is the consequence. It's deserved, it's righteous, it's just. It comes unexpectedly, suddenly. Twice that word is used. 
Now, there are, there are two different words used in the original language, but the same idea, suddenly. And also it comes completely, without remedy. When destruction comes to a person that is, that is described like this, when this destruction comes, there's no recourse. It's over. When this destruction comes that is going to be the eternal damnation and devastation of the wicked man. And what's being described here is eternal judgment. What is in mind here is the great day of judgment when the destiny of all those who have lived wickedly and clung to their wickedness and not been delivered from their wickedness will be called to stand before God and will be cast away from God into everlasting condemnation. It will come deservedly. It will come unexpectedly. And it will come without remedy. It will be complete. That's a horrible picture. It's not the kind of happy-go-lucky, feel-good stuff that we all want to hear. But it's the truth. It's the reality. But you know, as bad as all of this is, that's not the worst for this man that's described in our text. That's not really the desperate condition that he's in. Destruction is in the future of this wicked man. His wickedness has a horrific destiny, but his real problem, his ultimate problem is spelled out in verses 16 through 19. His real problem is that God is opposed to him. God has set his sights on him as his enemy. Did you notice in verse 15, it's a, it's a passive voice that is used. Suddenly he shall be broken without remedy. It doesn't say he breaks or he's destroyed. He shall be broken. It will happen to him. Who's going to do it? The wicked man's not the one that is acting here. It's being done to him. Who's the one who will break him? Who's the one that will bring him to never-ending destruction? It is God. And that's spelled out in these last verses, 16 through 19. There's a, a clear parallel between what is written in these verses and the verses that we just looked at above. Those who give themselves to wickedness set themselves in opposition to God. Now this is one of the several numeric proverbs we find in the book of Proverbs. And elsewhere in, in the wisdom literature of the Bible. You see, it starts off, these six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. And by, by listing six, no seven, it's not saying that there are only seven things that God is opposed to. This is not an exhaustive list. This is a literary way of expressing how deadly serious this list is and how representative it is of all that is being said about what God hates, about what is an abomination to God. 
And by virtue of this technique, the wise man is setting before us how the wicked person's real problem is that God opposes him. God is set over against him. Look at the things listed here that God hates. Things that are an abomination. First, a proud look. We've seen that already. He winks with his eyes, remember? It's a proud look. High eyes, literally, is what it is. It's the kind of look that betrays arrogance and pride. You know, you don't display arrogance merely by saying something like, I'm great and I'm better than everybody else and you're nothing. You can display arrogance by the way you look, by the tone of your voice, by the expression on your face. I can't help but stop here for a moment and and say to all of us who are parents of young children, that this, that this has incredible application for us. We are told to bring our children up in the training and admonition of the Lord. And we're instructed to correct them. And that correction ought to be when they intentionally, willfully go against what is reasonable. That they can attain what has been set before them as a right and good authority. When you tell them something as simple as, to pick up trash off the floor. And they're strong enough and they're able to do it. And they understand you and they don't do it. That's to be corrected. Because you've got a a battle on your hands at that point. Your will against theirs. You, You were to correct that. You're to train them in that. But if they go and pick up trash and then look at you, with that expression, and then walk over and throw in the garbage, the work's not finished. And the reason that it's not finished is not because you've been personally offended by that look. The reason that it's not finished is because they've engaged in something that you know God hates. Why do you correct them when they don't pick up the trash? Because they are going to, they're going against the stated authority of God. God puts you in their lives. You've instructed them. They're capable of doing it. It's not a sin, and they refuse to do it. They're actually rebelling against God because they're rebelling against the authority that he has established for them. And you must correct that to bring to bear the authority of God upon their lives so that they will recognize how desperately they need mercy and forgiveness because they are innately wired against God. Well, that's not just true for actions, it's true for expressions. Expressions. And parents, we should, we should meditate on this and think about the implications this ought to have in the way that we shepherd our children. In addition to a proud look, a lying tongue is listed. A person who slanders, who deceives, who slights the truth. This is the kind of deception that a person will be tempted to use very often with an authority. You know, your boss says something like, hey, look, uh, did you did you do this? Yeah, yeah, I did it. And you're you're hoping that once he leaves that you'll be able to get it done before he checks. Or the parent that has told the child you may not do something 
But that child gave in to temptation and did it. And mom says, hey, how did this go? I'm, I'm glad you didn't do that. Oh, well, yeah, okay. And you just kind of let it slide and hope that she doesn't find out about it. A lying tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood. And immediately, when we hear this, uh, we're go- a lot of us are going to say, okay, I don't do that. I haven't killed anybody. Except Jesus says that if you're angry with somebody in your heart in an unjust way, you're guilty of breaking this commandment. It's murder in your heart. He doesn't say that it's just as bad as physical murder. He says that it's, it also breaks God's law and it makes you culpable, guilty before God. Shedding innocent blood was one of the great crimes of King Manasseh, who ruled over the people of God. If you turn over to 2 Kings chapter 24, it gives us an example of this. 2 Kings chapter 24, and we read in verses 3 and 4. Surely at the commandment of the Lord, this, and this is talking about the overthrow of Judah by Babylon, this came upon Judah to remove them from his sight because of the sins of Manasseh, according to all that he he had done, and also because of the innocent blood that he shed. For he had filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, which the Lord would not pardon. God takes seriously the shedding of innocent blood. Murder is serious. Taking innocent life is serious. God hates it. It's an abomination to him. And what must his thought be of of America, where millions of innocent lives are taken from mother's wombs every year? Scripture says God hates it. It's an abomination. It's an expression of wickedness that will will, will result in destruction. Does God have an opinion about abortion? Yes. You don't have to imagine it. You can look at this verse and say he hates it. It's an abomination to him. The fourth thing that is listed for us, the fourth thing that he hates is a heart that devises wicked plans. Again, this is coming into the inner life of the person. That which unleashes these wicked schemes in the world. The fifth thing, feet that are swift and running to evil. Attracted to evil, quick to join in with evil. This has to do with the outer life of the person. And we see that God is concerned with both the inner and the outer life. And in verse 19, a false witness who speaks lies. This is a person who shades the truth or breathes out lies as just a normal way of speaking. You know, some people are so prone to lying that it's just natural to them. They believe their own lies. And you don't know whether to believe anything that comes out of their mouth because they just breathe out lies. And then finally, one who sows discord among brethren. And again, notice that it's not just the sowing of discord that God hates. It's one who sows discord among brothers that God hates. God sees these things, such as people and and people that do this as an abomination. 
And that, that's some of the strongest language that can be used to describe God's opposition. We're being told that God stands absolutely against these things. He will take no quarter in his opposition against these expressions and sources of wickedness. There's really no uncertainty in what's being said here about God's attitude toward the wicked or the nature of wickedness. And the bottom line is wicked people are in trouble. And their trouble is not just that their life isn't going the the way that they want it to go. The trouble is they have set God in opposition to themselves. God is their enemy. They're on one side and God is on the other. And he has all the authority and power. And the fact that he has kept people wicked people alive as long as he has is a testimony to his mercy and his patience and his long-suffering. Well, aren't you glad that we're not like that? Well, maybe you haven't gone headlong in all these ways, but we need to guard ourselves against comforting ourselves in this way. Our tendency is to want to distance ourselves from this type of person that's described. You've got the wicked over there and you've got the good guys over here. And I'm with the good guys. You've got the evil people over there. The horrible monsters from history at Hitler. The Jeffrey Dahmers. And then you've got us. And we're part of the good team. We're not with those monsters. But such an understanding of wickedness and evil is superficial. It fails to recognize what the Bible says about what sin has done in the fallenness of the world. Alexander Solzhenitsyn was a Russian novelist and he he won a Nobel Peace Prize for his writings back when that still meant something. And he spent years in a Russian gulag, a prison camp as an insurrectionist against the Soviet Union. And he describes in his book, Gulag Archipelago, lying on rotting straw when the truth of wickedness and evil began to dawn in him. And listen to what he wrote. If only it were all so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds. And it were necessarily necessary only to separate them from the rest and to keep them from us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of one's own heart? It's not out there. It's in here. The seeds of wickedness portrayed in its full flower in these verses that we've looked at, they're within every one of us. And some of you have those seeds sprouting today and they've never been dealt with. And you've just continued in your life. And maybe it's a respectable life. Maybe, Maybe you're a good neighbor and a good citizen. And yet you figured out a way to just kind of manage your life. And you don't really believe what the Bible says about you with regard to wickedness and evil. The reality is this wickedness, this evil, is the result of our falling away away from God. And it resides in every human heart. 
And unless your heart is changed, unless there is something that is done for you and in you, you will wind up experiencing the same devastation, the very destruction that is warned of here, that is warned of being the destiny of those who are wicked and evil. The he in this text, in reality, is us apart from the grace of God. Paul writes in Romans 3, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is no one who understands. There is none that seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. This is the result of the ravaging effects of sin. This is what we've left, been left with because of the rebellion in the Garden of Eden. We're not what we were created to be. We're not what we ought to be. Sin has turned us away from God so consequently that God is opposed to us. And these verses are clear. They're, they're plain about God's attitude to this wickedness. So let me ask you, can you, can you honestly say before God and look at the list of things that he opposes, the nature of sin and say, no, not guilty of that. Never done that. Never had a proud look. Never had a, never told a lie. My heart isn't devising evil plans. I've never borne false witness. I've never sown discord among people. Can you say that you're not guilty on all counts? Well, of course you can't. And neither can I. And if you're here and you're breathing, you're guilty. Because sin has done this to the whole human race. And this is why we need to be rescued. Rescued from what? It's not what. It's from whom? Rescued from God because God opposes the wicked. The wicked activities of fallen people are an abomination to him. This is precisely why God sent his son into the world. This is why Jesus came. And if you don't get this, if you don't see the truth about this bad news first, then the story of Jesus will become just one more story to you. But if you understand that we're all under the wrath of God and that he opposes us and opposed our wicked activities and thoughts and imaginations and motivations, then you'll realize we need to be rescued. We need help. We need to be saved. And that's what God did. And his opposition to, his hatred of sin, nevertheless, God in his great love and mercy sent his only begotten son to do what had to be done in order to make a way of escape. In order to reconcile sinners to himself through Christ. In order to come and bring us back into good relationship with him. That's why Jesus 
That's what Jesus was doing when he was living on earth. He was perfectly obeying God's law, the law by which God judges us. The law that holds us accountable. And then Jesus died on the cross. He was taking the wrath of God. The curse of the law against everyone who sins. And though he never sinned, he was taking that curse against himself. And when Jesus is on the cross, he experiences the Father's face being turned away. He experiences the forsakenness of God. And so he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that cry from the cross is an expression of the Son of God. Of all that will come to those who live and die in their sin. He paid that so that those who are wicked, that look to him and renounce their sin and come to him and trust him as Lord and Savior, might escape this condemnation, might receive forgiveness, might be reconciled to God and have God no longer as their enemy who opposes them, but God as their father and as their friend. God is the one who will hold them and keep them and take them forever with him in heaven. That's what Jesus did. That's what makes the gospel good news because God came to save Sinners. He came to save wicked people like us. When he saves us, you trust in him. It's not just that your status before God changes. That's true. Your standing is different. But God also changes you inwardly. He deals with your heart. We've seen twice already in this text that the problem is not external. It's not out there. The problem stems within this wicked man's nature. We must be changed internally. In the heart. Brothers and sisters, that's what happened to us when we came to Christ. That new life given to us. That's the Spirit's work in us that transforms us inwardly. And if you're trusting Christ, you're in that that process. You're on that road. And I know what Paul said in Romans 7 is true of you and true of me. That there's days where it seems like that you you want to do what you don't want. You do what you don't want to do. And the things that you don't want to do, you do. And you hate yourself because of that. You don't want to be that way. But you know it's sin within you. But you also know that the day is coming when it is going to be completely done away with. You're going to be free. And when we see Christ as he really is. When we love him with a heart that does not sin. When we can rejoice in him and serve him. And have fellowship with him with no barrier. No guilty. No guilty conscience. No sense of shame or failure. That's going to be heaven. And we'll have him and he'll have us. And it's going to be the, the, the way it should have been from the beginning. Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. 
The work of our salvation will enter into its everlasting completion. The prophet Ezekiel anticipates the beginning of this internal work in Ezekiel 36, 26, when he says on behalf of God, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. It's the same experience that Jesus talks about to Nicodemus in John chapter 3 when he says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. It's not enough to become religious. It's not enough to join a church. It's not enough to just get wet in a baptistry. You must be born from God's spirit. You must come and he must come and give life to you so that the wickedness of your heart begins to be transformed. And these things that the Bible describes as evil that God hates, you hate. What he opposes, you oppose. And you're not satisfied to go on in your sin any, anymore. And without this kind of supernatural, God-given change, you will remain under the severe condemnation and judgment of God. The evil in your heart provokes God's opposition. It's an abomination to him. Until you see this about yourself and you believe it, you'll never be, you'll never seek to be transformed by his mercy and grace. So do you see it? You came here this morning either having God's grace work in you to transform you so that you can say, yes, that is true. I hate that too. God hates it and I hate it. I'm not the way I used to be. And I'm not what I'm ultimately going to be, but I hate this. And I can say yes to what God says. Or you came here this morning thinking, you're okay. You know, God does his thing and you do your thing. And maybe not thinking about it very deeply at all. But being comforted with the reality that God looks upon you as one that he opposes. One that is under his judgment. If you see that, dear friend, don't stay that way. Believe the promise of salvation to all who come to Christ and trust the Lord Jesus. Agree with God that what is said in this text is true of you and call upon the Lord to save you. The Lord delights in, in bringing about salvation. The problem is that too many people refuse to see what this text teaches. That evil in reality is inward and not outside of us. If you hear nothing else this morning, please hear this. The evil, the wickedness that is going to bring about God's eternal judgment and punishment is wickedness that rises from within. As I close, I just want to give this story to you. During World War II, Adolf Eichmann was Hitler's angel of death. He was the guy who was responsible for the extermination of the Jews. And under his leadership, more than six million Jews were murdered in that horrific atrocity, the Holocaust. And after the war, Eichmann escaped and he went to South America and lived in Argentina and was living a quiet life until 1960 
when the Israeli authorities discovered him and arrested him and brought him back to Israel for trial. One of the people called to testify against him was a survivor of the Holocaust, a man who had seen his family and friends gassed to death, brutalized by the German war machine. And when he came into the courtroom and he confronted Eichmann, he began to shout and then he began to weep uncontrollably. Yil Dinner was his name. And Dinur finally fell down on the ground and he was completely helpless to move. And he was helped out and taken out of the courtroom. And the people who witnessed this and heard about it, they assumed that when he saw Eichmann, all of the atrocities of the concentration camp came flooding back into his mind and the memories unhinged him. But when they interviewed him, he said, no, it wasn't the memories of all the evil. What he came to understand was that the evil that he thought was in other people is that evil that resides in all people. He was expecting, he said, to find Eichmann to be a moral monster. But when he gazed in Eichmann's eyes, he said he realized for the first time that sin and evil are part of the human condition. He said that I am capable to do this exactly like Eichmann did. And this shattered him. He saw what Solomon is talking about and what the Bible teaches. Brothers and sisters, we must take sin seriously. We have to believe what Scripture says about wickedness and evil and realize that we are in desperate need of what God in His mercy and grace has done in His Son, Jesus Christ. And if you're trusting Christ, trust Him more, love Him, rejoice. Can you believe what we've been rescued from? We ought to be praising God forever. We ought to be the happiest people in the world. We ought to be fully devoted to this Lord and Savior who came and took us out of this. If you're not trusting Christ, I pray that your eyes will be open to see it. That you will see it and you you won't be able to rest or sleep until you are finally believing what God says is true of you. That your heart is shot through with wickedness. And because of that, you are under his judgment, his wrath. And unless he rescues you, your end will be everlasting punishment. May God have mercy on you. Open your eyes today. Flee to Christ. He is a perfect Savior for the greatest of sinners. Let's pray. Gracious Father, Lord, we thank you for the words of this proverb. Lord, we thank you for showing us, Lord, what wickedness and evil look like. Lord, not outside of us, but in our hearts. Lord, we pray, Lord, that we would turn away from evil. Lord, we pray that your work in us would cause us, Lord, to abandon it, forsake it. And, Lord, to seek you in our ways, in our doings, everything, Lord, that we think and speak. And, Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ 
and for the redemption that is in him, Lord, for saving us and rescuing us from this, this horrible, desperate judgment, Lord. And Lord, we pray that if those here who do not know Christ, Lord, that their eyes will be opened, that your spirit would come and use the word and open their eyes to this, this reality, Lord. And that they would call upon Jesus Christ and be saved in him. Father, we pray this in his holy name. Amen.